0: And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield Podcast, and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by Beaver Fit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have. Getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And Beaver Fit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. Beaverfit Gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, Use the code BTS10 that's BTS10, and you will get 10 percent off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, listen to episode 477 with the original founder Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of Beaver Fit USA, Alex Roodhouse and Mike Taylor on episode 457. you will get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 482 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Debbie Lee. Now, Debbie is not only the mother of Mark Lee, who was the very first Navy SEAL killed in Iraq, in Ramadi, but she herself has an incredibly powerful story and is so courageous in telling these stories. She endured a very unusual childhood, domestic abuse to the point of almost being killed by her previous husband, losing another husband to suicide, and then obviously losing Mark in combat. But she was able to work through her grief and start an incredible foundation called America's Mighty Warriors. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask is that you pay it forward, that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Debbie Lee. Enjoy. Well, Debbie, I want to start by saying, firstly, that it was an absolute honor to meet you at the Echelon Front event. But also, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the Behind the Show podcast today.
1: You bet. I'm excited to be here today and uh, get to speak with you and looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: I am in Surprise, Arizona. And yes, that's really the name of the town. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of that town before.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. It's it's a suburb of Phoenix, so I don't know if a long time ago, you know, the uh when the you know our ancestors were going across the country and you know they found some water here and they went surprise or why it's named that, but it's a very unique name. I was actually uh, I've been a widow for 27 years and was on a dating website a long time ago. Um, but one of the guys never communicated with him and he just wrote oh you're one of those women that you won't even tell somebody where you live you put you live in surprise Arizona I'm like click delete
0: (laughs) absolutely I I I was post-divorce thrown into that internet well actually my my wife now I found from match.com so I have to say you know there there are some good people out there but yeah that was definitely uh an interesting experience I'm sure you saw the 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 highs and the lows in that that field yes
1: Yes, very much so. Um, Yeah, people can make themselves out to be something pretty cool. I don't know how they don't realize that if it works into something, you're eventually going to meet them and you're going to see the reality of it. But I had one guy on there that put he was six foot one. I'm I'm five ten. So I'm pretty tall. And we walked in the restaurant. He was about five foot six. And I was like, so did he not think I wouldn't notice? (laughs) (laughs) But he was sitting down. I thought it was kind of odd when I first walked in because he was sitting down and didn't get up when I came to the booth. And so I didn't didn't realize it till, you know, we were leaving and I was like, OK, yeah, but it's it's interesting. But great for you that you were able to find someone. That's awesome.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. So don't give up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So then, as you know, I love to start chronologically at the very beginning. You have a very interesting early life, so I would love to spend some time kind of exploring that. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings you had.
1: Okay, well, I was born in Greeley, Colorado. Um, my uh, very unique wow, just let's throw that in asking about the siblings. I'm either an only child or come from a family of thirteen. so my mom got pregnant with me uh, she was seventeen years old and you know that things were a lot different back then and they were trying to um, that I wouldn't be obviously I was conceived out of wedlock but you know they want to try to make everything look normal so my grandmother arranged for my mom to marry my grandmother's boyfriend so my mom was 17 he was 35. now my mom and i are totally different personalities if my mom would have come to me and told me that i've been like oh heck no i'm gonna raise this baby by myself i'll be fine thank you very much i'm marrying that old part um, but my mom was very compliant i'm sure she was very scared at that point, you know, to find out that she was pregnant and had no idea how she was going to raise this, this child. So, um, my mom and the man that I thought was my dad, who raised me, um, you know, most of my life and who I do consider my father, um, you know, he was a police officer, I was a sergeant in the police department, and um, they then had my brother. A, a year, well, actually, a year later, they got pregnant with twins. And one died, uh, they both died shortly after childbirth. One lived about 24 hours, one lived 48 hours. And then a year later, they got pregnant with my brother Vance, who I grew up with, who I did not know, you know, wasn't a full brother, didn't know anything different. And then my mom went through a divorce and um, remarried again. They had a little boy and then uh, she got divorced and married again. And at 55, they tried to have children as well. She married a bachelor who'd never been married. And thank goodness they didn't, because I have a brother who's just a few years older than my oldest son. I could have had a brother a few years older than my grandchildren. That is not normal. So I had a strange upbringing. I did finally meet my biological father when I was 16. Uh, My mom and I were were fighting, and uh, she said, you don't even know who your father is. And I was like, do you? Because she had been pretty promiscuous in between some marriages. We shared a bedroom and, um, you know, there were things that happened in there when I was supposedly sleeping that, you know, so it left, it left scars on me, you know? And so I was, you know, very angry with my mother, very upset with her as a 16 year old, you know, we all kind of go through that testing the water's rebellious age, you know, and I, I maybe tested the waters a little more than, than most people, but, um, then did meet my biological dad at 16, kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Cause when I was 11, I was already five foot nine. My mom was five foot six. My dad was five foot five. There wasn't really anybody very tall in my family. So I was always like, what am I a freak? You know, how did I, <laughs> and I met my dad and he was six foot four. So then I was like, Oh, okay. Well this makes sense now. Um, but, and he had married um, after my mom and him, you know, had uh, been together and he had three children from that first marriage. Then he married again. She had a son, they had a son, and then he married again and she had four boys. So it's, you know, very much dysfunctional family. We probably could have written a book on a dysfunctional family, but it, you know, it's those things. Now, as I look back, it didn't make any sense to me. I was not happy with where my life was You know, growing up and as a teenager, and like I said, I did, you know, rebel, but um, very much now I see those are those trials and tragedies in my life that I went through that developed that character. And I don't know if it was something just kind of ingrained in me. You know, I am a strong willed personality, and I think that's what gave me the ability to say, I'm not going to let these things take me down. You know, I'm going to persevere. I am going to, you know, rise above this as a child and a teenager i don't think you have the ability to do that but part of that personality that was in me and then as i grew as an adult then obviously those choices you know that i made to say i'm not quitting i'm not quitting i'm not quitting i'm not giving up but those are those things that developed that character and that personality you know in the early stages of my life you know
0: now with as you mentioned that that rather unusual marriage and you see that in in other cultures you know in India and places like that where you have these arranged marriage there may be a, a large age gap um were they able to find love together was it always tumultuous
1: um you know obviously I, I was a young child they divorced when I was about 11. I felt like that that they had found you know love but Looking back, I think it was very much he was kind of that father figure in her life. She had also come up from a dysfunctional family. Um, He very much was that protector, you know, and provider. Uh, She wanted to go back to to college and and get her degree, and she did. You know, he worked so she could do that, provided that way so she could go back and get her degree in education. Um, I know that, you know, I was his little girl. He cherished me and loved me. You know, to to pieces. Um, but I think it was very much more that I'm going to be your provider, I'm going to be your protector. The arrangement originally was they would just get married, I would be born, and then they would annul the marriage. So obviously, you know, they chose not to do that for you know, whatever reason at that point. So there must have been something that that was there but I don't know that it was the normal, you know, young love, you fall in love with each other, you know, and, but, um, you know, definitely he, he provided a a lot for my mom to be able to fulfill some of those dreams that she had in her life. Um, You know, he eventually um, had some problems that, you know, and he ended up in the mental hospital and that was when, you know, the marriage then, you know, started to fall. I'm sure it fell apart before that point. You know, as a child, I didn't notice, didn't see those things. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, had some mental health, you know, problems.
0: Yeah, and that was he said he was a police officer.
1: Yes, he was a police officer.
0: Yeah, so sadly, I mean, that's something that we see a lot, whether it's addiction or depression or anxiety or even suicide. Yes. I mean, that is that is rife in our professions.
1: It is very much so. And, you know, I do remember that there was one of the police officers that he was very close to. Um, as I recall, my dad was not actually on that call when they went and when um, his name is James Longfellow. I'm not sure how this many years later I remember that gentleman's name, but um, he was shot and severely wounded and was a paraplegic, you know, for a long time. But um, and and I'm not sure the the situation as the story was told to me was um was back this tells you how long ago it was back when we still had parking meters and they put change in the parking meters but um part of his job somewhere was then to collect that money from the parking meters I'm not sure why as a sergeant you would be out doing those kind of things but it was a small town and um or if it was when the money was brought in but he ended up stealing the money from the parking meters and it he couldn't live with himself, you know. It it drove him crazy. I'm sure, looking back now, and the work that we do with veterans, and understanding what they see, you know, the law enforcement, our veterans, all our first responders, what they see when they go out on calls, what they deal with on a daily basis, that weighs heavily um, on them. And they, you know, like I said, they struggle with uh, the post traumatic stress. They struggle, you know, with suicidal thoughts constantly. And so I, I do looking back, you know, I have a better understanding of some of those things that he went through. But um, yeah, I remember uh, I was a cheerleader in high school and I remember going down to get our our cheerleading uniforms in downtown Denver. And at the time, Lamar, uh, Lamar Street or Larimer Street, Larimer Street was um, not like it is now with all these fancy restaurants and shops. It was the dumps and that's where the bums were at. And I remember um, we had to walk about two blocks through that area to get to where we ordered our cheerleading uniforms, and uh, walk by a doorstep, and there was my my dad, you know, as a bum, huddled up on that doorstep, and it was just like, oh my gosh, that's that's my dad, you know, and um, you know I'm there with my other friends from you know from high school, the other cheerleaders that were with me, and it was just shocking, you know, and I I, I couldn't even stop, you know, I was just like oh my gosh, what do I do? How do I handle this? That's my dad. You know, of course they divorced already. And so he'd been gone from the home for a while, but he did then later in life kind of, you know, pick himself back up out of that um, and was not, you know, homeless or a bum anymore. But, you know, these are those things that you bury, um, you know, in your psyche and you don't think about, you don't talk. I have not thought about this for for years and years and years, but um, you know, you go back and you go, oh my gosh, you know, that's 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 personal, but that's crazy that you know that was my childhood, you know, that was my teen years. That's you know, I count my blessings that I'm not you know locked up somewhere in a mental hospital or totally you know have lost it. But you know, it, it like I said, I have not thought about that for years and years and years. But those are those things of your life that you have to move past. You can't get stuck there. You can't say, okay, this is the cards that is dealt to me. This is my life. I'll never be anything. I can't, you know, rise above this challenge. You know, that is so much a mindset in life. And um, I will be 67 here in a few weeks. So I've had lots of years you know, and lots of tragedies and trials and circumstances, as we all do. You know, my circumstance may be a little bit unique and that, you know, no one else can say they, you know, saw their dad as a homeless bum, you know, in a corner somewhere, but we've all got those trials and those tragedies that we go through in our life. And we do have a choice. We don't have a choice the the circumstance that was handed to us, but we do have a choice how we respond. And that's in all of us, no matter what our education level is, no matter what our background, no matter what we are, social status, no matter what color we are, no matter what faith we are, we all have that ability in us to stop, say, here's the cards that have been dealt to me. Here's the choice I'm going to make. And obviously, my son was a Navy SEAL. And I think back to those Um, Hell week when they have four hours of sleep for the entire week, and they get twenty minutes here, ten minutes there. And I'm sure those twenty minutes, you know, seem like forever when you don't get any sleep. But I'll tell you what: if um, I had an amazing night's sleep last night, if I'd have had four hours sleep last night, you and I would barely be having this conversation because I'd keep going. I'm sorry. What was what I just said? Where was I at? What was Mm -hmm. I talking about? So I can't imagine having four hours sleep for an entire week and still being able to function, being sit out on boats, you know, being, having the boat portage where you're being knocked up against the rocks and the waves and being out in the sand and getting wet and sandy and running, and they're just pushing you to your limits. But their body gets to a place where it says, I can't, I cannot run one more stride. I can't swim one more stroke. I'm done. I'm physically on toast. And their bodies really are physically toast. And yet it's their mind that says, no, keep going. One more stroke, one more stride, keep going, don't quit, one more, one more. And that's the mentality that we have to have no matter what we're faced with in life. You know, those um, tragedies and trials mold us and shape us if we make those choices, then to take one more step to see what's next. And if any of those stages in my life, I would have stopped and given up, then we wouldn't be where we're at today with our foundation and the impact that we're making. You know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be, have 11 grandkids that I get to love on and encourage. I'd be home and they'd be having to take care of me, you know? And so again, that's totally a mindset that any of us can choose to make no matter how much pain we're in. You know, you can still say, I am going to get up today. And I maybe I'm not, don't have the ability to say I'm going to run a marathon today, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to run up and down one flight of stairs. And that's where we start with those little tiny, you know, steps and those little tiny choices. And once you make that, then it's easier to make one more. And you make choices to make sure that you're eating healthy and that you're exercising and that your mindset, you're training that with good things that you're reading. You know, I'm a believer for, you know, my quiet time every morning is crucial for my day. And that has been for, for lots of years. And so you make those plans and choices in your life to do those things.
0: Beautiful. I mean, it's so important to hear that. And I agree a hundred percent, but I think what's also tragic about, you know, the, the memory you just had is something I talk about and a lot of these homeless people that we see, let's say, forget a lot, all of these homeless people that we see have trauma in their life, you know, and that point there maybe they're low hopefully they're able to come back out of it many don't but i think you know we have a lot of us that are doing much better now and and you know i feel like if we looked at homelessness if we looked at addiction all these other elements as mental health issues you know and then we're empathetic empathetic and compassionate towards these people and help raise them up we won't have a homeless problem anymore, you know. But how many homeless? I mean, I know, I know of of homeless people that were fully functional, you know, very successful nurses, you know, that were veterans that, you know, were firefighters, and you know, then they're reduced to oh that bum that lives under the bridge. Like no, that's a human being that started off as a, you know, a bubbly little toddler, and then and then life happens. So. I think that balance of ownership, which obviously, you know, you're fully aware of, you walk the walk and you're around, you know, Jocko and those guys that that, that certainly preach that, um, but also the environment to, to, to lift up the broken and give them that foundation so they can then start taking those steps.
1: Yeah, very much so. And that is contagious. You know, when you're out there sharing your struggles and you're sharing your story and how you came from, you know, where you were, whether it's, homelessness, you know, a dysfunctional family, you know, being you know left uh, with the loss of a loved one, you know, I've walked through that you know twice losing a husband and losing a son, whether you you know deal with um, a marriage that's falling apart, abuse in a marriage, you know you've lost your job. again, those are those are circumstances that are tragic, but they don't have to define who you are you can make that choice than to say, okay, this was, you know, for me, I look back at, you know, the first marriage that I, you know, had, it was a terrible choice. And I knew that my mom forbid me to marry him and talk about strong will just to piss her off. I did it. You know, I'm like, nobody's going to prove to me. Nobody's going to tell me I can't do anything. Watch this. And the consequences came back on me. So that was a stupid choice that I made that then I suffered consequences um, because he was a, an alcoholic and a drug user. I did not know that when I married him. I knew he liked to drink and party and have fun. Um, I never saw, you know, the the drug usage or was aware of that, but didn't realize it was an alcoholic either. But he was great if he wasn't drinking, you know, or doing his drugs. But man, he was Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and very abusive, and um, almost killed me at the age of 23. But so those are things that when I look back on, yes, it was my stupid choice. We make stupid choices in life. You know, you look back at my loss of Mark, that was not my choice at all. You know, that was the evil in this world, the savages as Chris Kyle used to call, you know, the terrorists that, that you know, killed Mark. That wasn't anything. So we have circumstances, some that are our own stupid choices, some that are not, but we can still respond that way to that. I can look back and say, You know, I can apologize and I can take care of the consequences because of my choices that I'm responsible for. But then you don't let that consume you either. You don't say, well, I can't do anything else. Look, this is what I went through. I had a husband, you know, who tried to kill me. I can't, I can't, what am I going to do? You know, no, yes, you have to heal. You can't ignore it and act like nothing happened. I can't look back at Mark's loss and and go on with life and act like nothing ever happened i would be in a looney tune bin somewhere because you have to accept that you have to process through that but you have to do it in a healthy way you know not relying on drugs and alcohol i get it when people self medicate when they're in pain i totally understand the pain you know they say the toughest loss you could ever go through is the loss of a child and i can tell you having lost a husband and lost a child. That is so true. There is nothing tougher than losing your kid. It's not supposed to be that way. But um, as you go through those losses, you have to process through the stages. They say there's seven stages of grief in all the books you read. Eh, I don't know. There's seven stages for everybody. That's a good guideline to tell people. But I never went through the anger stage of grief with Mark. You know, I knew... That god had a plan i knew that he was still in control i'd seen him walk me through death before um, he was still the same god on august 2nd as he was on august 1st he hadn't changed my circumstances had drastically changed but he hadn't changed and i knew he would see me through i knew there would be pain i knew i couldn't just say oh i'm fine everything's good i tell people those tears and grieving are part of that healing process and you have to let them flow don't bottle them up inside But on the other hand, don't sit and cry all day long. When I know we're, you know, leading up to August 2nd, it'll be 15 years that Mark gave his life. I know those are tough days. You know, I haven't been one through one anniversary 15 years out. That's not painful. And I know that. So I prepare for that. Mark's last letter home talks about doing more random acts of kindness. And he he says we could change our world by doing more random acts of kindness. He said, when's the last time you paid for a stranger's cup of coffee or meal or tank of gas? So I do those things. I go out to the base and I find veterans and I buy tanks of gas all day long. I buy coffee in the, you know, PX where the coffee's at. I buy meals. And then I give them a copy of Mark's letter and thank them for their service. That is so encouraging, so rewarding to do that. And so that helps me through that day. I prepare for that that way. I'm honoring Mark. But those are those things that you learn in life, no matter what your circumstances are, that you're going through, that's the struggles. You learn how to process through that. You don't avoid it. You don't go above it, around it, beyond it. You gotta go smack through the middle of it to get to the healthier side. And I've had lots of life experience to be able to, to practice that and work on that. You know, you, you wish you didn't have to go through so much. But I look back and I wouldn't be who I am today if it wouldn't have been having to go through those to mold me and shape me. I think God knew, you know, that strong will that he gave me, but that I was using it not according to how he wanted me to use it. Once I made the choice to do what he wanted me to do, then, man, you can't stop a strong willed person when they're going in the right direction and their perseverance. And, you know, so that, that was a gift, but I had to learn how to use it the right way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you talked about, you know, the the road that made you strong. So um, firstly, before we get to, to the marriage and obviously you know, the the kids that you had, um, when you were at the school age, what were you dreaming of being career-wise?
1: Ah, oh, boy, now you're going to really take me back to think <laughs> about what was I thinking career-wise. That's a great question. I don't remember any specifics. And I'm one of those those people that my memory... Um and not just because I'm you know going to be 67, but I've always been that way. That there's not a lot that I do remember, good or bad. And I think part of that is a protection, and that you don't remember. You know, like that moment a moment ago when I went back to that memory that I hadn't thought about in so many years. Um, I know that I did you know want to be a pilot, but I don't remember what age that memory came. But I know that I wanted to be a pilot there were not a lot of obviously not a lot of women pilots back then so that was you know going to be an extra push to be able to make that happen and that is what I ended up going to, to college for uh, to become a pilot but um, I don't remember I, I know I always wanted to be a mom I wanted to raise kids I know that was always very passionate in my heart I love children And I, you know, and I think that was probably one of my my biggest ones. I know I had lots of scholarships when I graduated from high school and I turned them all down. You know, I got married young. I got married at 18. But that was really what I wanted to be. was, you know, I wanted to be a mom and a wife, you know.
0: Well, walk me through that then. So, you know, as you said, you got married young. So what was that period like? You mentioned that there were some very dark times. but were kind of from the inception to having your first child. Kind of walk me through that, that several year journey.
1: Sure. So, um, like I said, I got married, um, I had just turned 18 July 26th and we got married August 11th. So, um, was very young, but I had started working, um, at the bank when I was 16. I had left home, you know, when I was young, so already had my own apartment and was working full-time was very, you know, established for an 18 year old financially, I guess. Um, Not that I had any, you know, huge savings accounts or money set aside, but I thought I was doing pretty doggone good for for 18. Um, They called me the baby of the bank because I was the youngest um, employee they had. But um, we had a, you know, apartment. I was loving being out, you know, on my own and playing. I think we were playing life. I don't know that the reality of what we were doing really was considered. But noticed. You know, fairly early in the marriage when he drank, you know, that if I would make a comment to him or say anything or express my, you know, disappointment or upset in what was happening, then it, the abuse did not start, you know, right away from him beating me. It would be, um, I remember the, the first thing that happened was he would act like he was going to throw a punch at me. And then just before it'd get to my face then he like itch his nose. And um, so it was just that intimidation, that fear um, factor. And then it got to be, you know, each time it would get a little worse. Of course, the next day he would swear up and down and apologize. It'll never happen again. I'm so sorry. You know, he would bring me a gift or a present or flowers, you know, or make me a meal or just, um, you know, and you want to believe. And for me, I was, I knew that marriage was for life. When I went into that marriage, even though I was rebellious with my reason why, I think even more so I was going to prove to my mom this would work. And so, you know, she never knew half the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, because then that would validate that she was right. And God forbid at that age, I could say my mother was right. But um, and so it just over time would progress a little bit more. You know, the violence then would be a shove. And then it would be, you know, a punch. And then, you know, we were married four and a half years and it got pretty violent and aggressive at the end to the point where um, my neighbor, we were living in apartments and um, he had heard me screaming and yelling. Thank goodness. Um, We'd separated. My husband and I had separated and he'd been at the bar It was 2.15 in the morning. I should have gone, yeah, the bar's just closed. He's probably drunk. No, don't let him come back. But he said, I'm coming back to get my stuff. And for me, that was, okay, he's finally accepted that. And um, he came back to get his stuff. And there was one of those little six-pack coolers. um, And he came down with my oldest son in his arms, who was um, two and a half then. And the cooler was packed with his clothes. And he said, I'm taking my son. And I remember saying over my dead body. And um, didn't realize how close that would be at that point. So he um, threw Chris on the couch and proceeded to start to beat me. Sorry. um, When he came, when he came that night, When he went up to get his stuff, I came downstairs and I left the door cracked open in case I needed to run. And uh, fortunately, like I said, we lived in condos, and the neighbor next door heard me screaming and yelling and um, came in. He said he thought at that point that I probably was dead because I was limp on the couch and um, I was being choked. And he said you kind of had a bluish tint to you. And yet, the whole time, my son is sitting on the couch watching this. And They started fighting and the guy was a big guy, you know, six foot four. Um, My kid's father wasn't very big. um, And so there was a pretty good fight, you know, that pursued. And I was able to then, you know, kind of wake up a little bit and get up. And I grabbed Chris and ran next door and we called the police. And uh, Greg finally got away. Um, I think probably when when the police came, but I don't, I still to this day, I don't understand why the police didn't go inside and get him. I know he had a very um, violent, aggressive, had been arrested several times, had knife people. He was kicked out of the military um, because he had gotten in a fight with two sailors. And one of them had, I don't, some ridiculous 200 some stitches or something. So, you know, he had a record and, and I do know that, you know, the domestic abuse is the worst circumstances you can get into for a police officer. And, uh, but for whatever reason, they didn't go into the apartment. My daughter who was six months old at the time was still in there and I was concerned for her. And so I basically put my ear against the wall and was like, okay, if I hear her crying or screaming, I am going back in there. I I don't care what the outcome is. I've got to do that. And I never, you know, didn't hear her, but, um, my ex was in the kitchen boiling hot water at the stove and throwing it out the window at the police officers. It's just, you know, it was just weird stuff that was going on. But finally he called about five thirty in the morning. He said, I've left. And uh, he said, you can go get your daughter. And so um, we listened, the neighbor then went in to double check and was able to get my daughter and bring her back out of there. But, you know, that's some horrific stuff to go through. And th- I mean, this would have been 40, 43 years ago. And you can still see, you know, that pain, you know, when I talk about it, even though, you know, that's past in my life and I don't let that control me and consume me. When you bring that back up and you think about those details and you walk back through that again, man, that's, you know, I almost feel kind of a little sick to my stomach right now, you know, going back through some of that stuff, but again, that was that perseverance, and what the final straw for me was when I made the choice to leave because you get in this rut and you get so controlled by that other person. And like I said, it the pattern is so similar to the movies I've watched, to other stories I've heard t- people tell the forgiveness the next day, the gifts they swear will never happen again. I mean, he was even on an abuse which is the prescription drug that they give you as an alcoholic that will make you deathly sick if you drink while you're on it. And he was court ordered. So he had to go somewhere and take the antabuse. Um And of course he would keep it under his tongue or if, if he actually did have to swallow it, then he knew exactly how much he could drink before he got to that deathly sick point and um, you know, ended up in and out of prison, you know, the rest of his life. But Um, The final straw was he had done that like he was going to punch my two and a half year old, that motion of the fist and then itching his nose. And I went, oh, oh my gosh. And in a a warped, sick, sick way, I felt like I deserved what I got. That's how low I was. And not that anyone ever deserves to be beat like that. Um, But when I saw him do that to my son. That was the reality for me that I said, wait, what? Oh, heck no. Mm -mm, mm -mm. That little kid did not deserve. Um, And that's when I was like, if I'm going to, you know, save my children, I've got to walk away from this. And that isn't ever circumstances. If anyone happens to be listening that's in that environment, you need to get away from that. It's not going to get better. It's not going to change without professional help. Um, no matter what you try to do, and trust me, I tried so many different things, you know, to, to try to get that to be better. They've got to want to change that. And they have to be the ones that go get the help and go through that. But you need to protect yourself. Do not allow yourself to stay in those circumstances where you're being abused. I'm not saying that you have to go file for divorce and be done with it, but you need to separate and you need to get help. And you need to protect yourself and your children in those circumstances. Is it? It is. It's. It's tragic.
0: Well, firstly I want to thank you, and, and I'm sorry to you know pull you into that that dark place again. But I think you just painted a very gut wrenching, you know, true story. That as you said, there's probably many, many people listening that have or are enduring that. And I think that's what's so sad. I've I've responded to multiple infant fatalities that ended up being from abuse, and it's horrendous and completely preventable but you you know as you said that that abuse followed by you know the the apology that cycle you do see over and over again and so i think that's a very important you know perspective for people to hear and obviously another layer to the to the the incredible trauma you had you know for for multiple chapters of your life so you you by that point obviously had had removed yourself in that situation. So tell me about, you know, raising the the boys as a a single mother and you know what that dynamic was like for you.
1: Right. Well, and at that point, I just had the two children and I just had, um, Chris and Cheryl. And, um, because of the violence in the marriage at the time, um, they didn't have the laws that they do today to try to, you know, for domestic violence and to try to protect. Um, although it did have a restraining order at the time, but, um, I, because of the abuse, then the day that I filed for divorce, the divorce was final. There was no waiting period. They changed that to to be able to protect me. So then two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant with Mark. So it was like, oh my gosh, Um, you know, in the midst of this. And trust me, I love children, but it was just, it was overwhelming. And it's like, oh my gosh, I got a three and a half year old or no, a two and a half year old. And a six-month-old, you know, was we were going through that. And now I'm pregnant with another one. I get no child support. You know, I, I wasn't even, you know, working at that time. And it was like, okay, well, I can go to back to, the, you know, the bank and go back to work. But how am I going to feed, you know, three children? And then they heard two heartbeats. Every time I went in, they heard two heartbeats on Mark. And so I'm like, oh, now my family's going to double. But there was... Um, <laughs> A verse in Psalms that says your your children will be as arrows in your quiver when you're fighting the enemy. And I just clung to that. I'm like, okay, I don't know what lays ahead, but God knows there's going to be some enemies I'm going to need to fight. Okay, my, my kids are a blessing. They are a gift. Um, and um, so then, you know, I was determined. My, I was not going to live on welfare. I was not going to let the, you know, the state um, raise me and my children. And um, there were times that I worked, you know, three jobs, 96 hours a week to be able to take care of my kids. And it's, it's tough because I wasn't raising my kids when I'm working 96 hours a week. You know, someone else was raising those children. Um, and in spite of me, fortunately, you know, I ended up with three great kids. But um, we went through a lot. They went through a lot, you know. And again, because of my stupid strong will going to prove something to my mom. You know, they had to go through life then without a father who was in their, their life and, um, a mom who was hurting, you know, you could have closed the door and my self esteem was so low. I could have squeezed in underneath the door. I felt like I was worthless, worthless, that there was no value. And, um, yet, you know, God pulled me up out of the ash and redeemed me and let me know I was fearfully and wonderfully made and that he loved me and, um, but um, so it was it was a struggle, you know, trying to take care of these kids, trying to go through my grief, trying to figure out, you know, what my value, what my worth was. But um, I just kind of kept plugging away, plugging away. You know, there were times in there that it was like, OK, well, you've got to take care of yourself because if you don't love yourself. Nobody else is going to love you. How are you going to love your kids if you don't love yourself and kind of got you know, I had a car payment back in 1983. I bought a Mercury Grand Marquis, which was a $400 car payment back then. I don't have a car payment now. I'm debt-free, but I wouldn't want a $400 car payment now, let alone back then. So again, some stupid choices that were made, you know, trying to, you know, make myself better, you know, prove I was something to somebody. I don't know. But, um, So then I was a single mom for eight and a half years and married again. And I know when um, my ex did finally left, you know, he said, you're fat, you're ugly. Nobody's going to want a woman with three kids. You know, basically you're unlovable. And that's exactly the tape that played over and over and over in my mind. You know, you're unlovable. You're unlovable. Nobody loves you. And like I said, that was then, you know, where God led me to Psalms, again, another Psalms verse. (laughs) Said you're fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, and I started to, you know, grow in my faith and my relationship with God and understanding and who He was and what I was to Him and the value that I was and you know that He sent His Son, you know, to die for me. He loved me that much, and um, so it was a growing process, you know. Um, I had a lot of a lot of life ahead of me. I had a lot of growth to do, and um, so it was just you know, going through the day to day. And then um, finally met someone who I thought, you know, loved me and was going to accepted my kids and was going to take care of that. And uh, we married and um, through that time learned he was a horrific liar that what the marriage was built on who he told me he was, I mean, he would orchestrate other people to come into his lies and pretend they were his mother and, you know, or a, when we got engaged, I got a phone call from his supposed mom, who they were very wealthy, and he'd grown up in La Jolla, and she was giving me an airplane as our um, engagement present. I would, had just, you know, been through two and a half years in college uh, to be a pilot, fell and injured my back, and couldn't pass my first class medical, and so it was all excited. But you know, I mean, just some weird stuff. You, you know, you'd watch a movie, and and it sounds weird to talk about this all in one setting because it's just so much, but it's, it's bizarre and it's crazy, but, um, short story, um, long story short, I guess was, uh, we were married for about eight years and then he ended up taking his own life. Um, and so then I have been, um, I think my husband picker doesn't work too well. So for 27 years, I have been a widow and I'm good with that, (laughs) but, um, you know, it's again, it's those tragedies in life. We do a lot through our foundation for our veterans who are struggling with suicide. And when I speak with them, you know, because they know the background of Mark and the sacrifice he made and the loss and what we're doing, you know, to honor him through that, there's that respect piece there. But when they're deep and when we're in those conversations about the suicide and, and I'm trying to get them to open up and pull more out of them and help them, you know, lots of times they'll say, you have no idea what I'm going through. You know, and I'll say, well, actually, you know, 27 years ago, my husband took his life and the walls just come tumbling down that they're trying to build up. And they will just open up and pour out their hearts to me um, because they do know that I understand the struggles that they're dealing with. And again, God used that, not that he caused that in my life, but he used those circumstances then to help me in the mission that was ahead for me to be able to help those veterans You know, as I deal with, you know, um, obviously as a mom, I relate well to other moms who's lost, uh, you know, a son in combat, but, you know, being a spouse, now I've lost a spouse in death. I understand, you know, so I can comfort and encourage them as well. And again, I, I totally get it. When people curl up in a ball and feel sorry for themselves, for whatever, whether it's grief whether it's health issues, whether it's marriage, marriage, financial, when they curl up in a ball and feel sorry for, because that pain is real. You don't ignore that pain. Those struggles are real. But um, to be able to encourage them and say, yeah, I've, I've been there. I've walked through that. And you can still make a choice to go above that, to rise above it, in, in, you know, in spite of what's been handed to you. Is it exciting? Are you happy that that happened? No,
0: not at all.
1: But, um, you know, for me, it's God's strength that's given me that power and that mindset to be able to every day wake up and say, Thank you, God, that you've given me the gift for another day. And at night, you know, I go to bed saying, Thank you, God, that you got me through another day. And I'd never know what lays in store for that day. Um, that he has gifted me. You know, I have three, um, as I said, three great kids. I have eleven grandchildren that I've been blessed with. We just found out I'm going to be a great grandma. I'm, I'm kind of like, ooh, okay. My grandkids call me grandma, and I'm thinking, <laughs> of my grandma. But my mind, great grandma's got to be. An old woman with a gray bun on the top of her head and her walker just barely creeping along saying, Hey Sunny, what'd you say? You know? And um so we may need a code name on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Super grandma or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited that, you know, I've lived enough years and because, you know, I was twenty, I was young when I had my, my first one. Um, you know, so there is those that time then to be able to have all those blessings. And have all those, you know, joys and gifts. Um, and to be able to encourage others to be able to have a mission, you know, have a real purpose. And I think that's so many of the things that we go through in life. When I went through um, you know, my first divorce, who there was no purpose. I didn't know what I wanted to be or where I was going, or I didn't have a mission. My only day-to-day was I have three little kids that are counting on me. And I have to wake up every day and make sure that they're taken care of. Was I a perfect mom? Oh, heck no. Ask my children. They'll tell you otherwise. (laughs) But I did the best that I could with where I was at in life, with the struggles that I had been through in life, and with what I knew at that time. I wish, um, you know, Jocko and Leif and um, their extreme ownership, you know, that they teach those principles. Um, I wish I had that back then. I wish I had known that, but the way that I learned it and the lessons in life ingrained that so deeply in me, that's not going away. You know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, Oh, these are awesome ideas. And you start to implement them. Well, they don't just all happen overnight. It's a progression of practicing that over and over and applying that over and over and over in your life. And, um, You know, in my life, it was that living life that were those over and over and over. Okay, try this again. Okay, here's another circumstance. Okay, try this again Um, that built those. And do I have it all figured out? Do I have them all learned? Oh, heck no. You know, it's still a progress of learning day to day in relationships. And I have learned so much from um, Jocko and from Leif and from the principles that they do teach and the the way they do that, those are my boys. That was Mark's final gift to me, was his teammates. And that's my family. But I have and continue to, you know, as uh, we go to muster and um, as our foundation, America's Mighty Warriors, and set up a booth and set up a table. um, But I get to attend those. I do their, you know, um, EF Online, which is now Extreme Ownership Academy that they're changing over to. You know, I'm the, I'm on those calls every Monday, Wednesday, Friday as often as I can be, if there's not a conflict in the schedule. And I continue to practice those things I've learned. Communication is probably for me right now the biggest lesson that I've learned. You know, and how to be able to communicate well to people. You know, not just bark orders or, you know, um, respond out of emotion. So much earlier in my life, you know, I responded from that emotion instead of detaching from my emotion. You don't ignore your emotion. Emotion is good. It's important. It's healthy for you. God gave you the different emotions that we have. That's who we're made up as humans, but you don't respond. You take a, you know, take a breath, take a step back and not in anger, you know, you think about, or you think, am I listening? Am I hearing what they're saying? Or did I all of a sudden develop what I thought they were saying? And then I respond to that. So, Um, You know, that's probably my biggest learning curve right now where I've learned so much about, you know, communication and how we communicate to people.
0: Well, I think a a common denominator that I've had over and over again on here is I was taken aback how many people have really challenging early lives, you know, and it could be growing up around alcoholism, it could have been a recipient of domestic abuse, sexual abuse. I had one that was a boy soldier in Sierra Leone whose parents were murdered and he was forced to kill. I mean, either that or be executed. So, you know, I mean, these we see these films that are written, you know, these fictional stories, but the true stories are so much more harrowing, I think, you know. But out of that, you know, becomes, like you said, that that growth, that post-traumatic growth, you know, the self-forgiveness. But then the p the courageous people with stories like that when they then tell their story it's incredible how that opens the doors to the conversation it's kind of that you know me too even though that that hashtag got a you know a bad rap in a way but, right. it, but it's true yeah. it's like oh right. you know i i downplayed my trauma i was i wasn't at nine eleven, therefore i've got no reason to feel the way i feel and that's absolute crap so you know i think i agree with you completely even though those times must have been horrific in that moment, the ability for you to say, I do know how you feel. This is what happened to me. I've seen over and over again, just from from hearing from the guests that have come on and told their story, people come out the woodwork. Oh, you know, I, I, I've been wanting to talk to someone. This is how I'm feeling. So there's so much value in obviously processing that trauma, but then being able to talk about it to, to open the doors for others.
1: Yeah. You know, and that's one thing that I always say that God doesn't waste pain. You know, you go through that pain in your life. You go through those tragedies and trials in your life. And if we allow him, then he will use those, um, you know, not only to point others to him, but to help other people in the midst of their struggles. You know, there's um, a verse that says we comfort others and we encourage others in the way that we've been comforted. So I think that's important, you know, and not that everybody's called to do that. I'm not saying everybody has to do that. But when we can use our past circumstances, um, and again, not for sympathy, I don't want anybody's sympathy, but just to be able to say, here's what I went through. Here's the hope that you can have too, that you can overcome this tragedy. You can overcome this trial, these circumstances. That doesn't have to define who you are you still have that choice, that ability to say, I am still in control of the choices I make, of the way I think, of my actions. You still have control of that. You may not have control over anybody else, but you can encourage them. You can, you know, be there and walk alongside and support them and hopefully help them to be able to, you know, rise above as well.
0: Absolutely. Well actually one of the things that struck me the most um in the muster was Jocko and Leif were talking about um again, controlling your you know controlling what you can control. And even in a leadership sense, and I've been in places where the leadership was horrific, absolutely horrific. And um, yeah, when when I look back now they were like, Well you can control your reaction to that. You can, you know, you can still shape somewhat, but you can't control them at all and that was a, a bitter pill to swallow because when i look back i'm like, okay well here's some areas i could have done that better. i don't think it would have changed the outcome but maybe it would have changed my stress levels if nothing else <laughs> but uh but yeah but you know i think it's it's very 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 empowering to realize that yeah you know pe- things externally will happen to you and some are in your control some are not but just understanding that it is what it is and and how you react now is the only thing that truly is in your power
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, too, that um, you you can still have joy. It doesn't have to be. uh, I think of a cat, you know, there used to be, I don't know, clothesline that really dates it because most people don't have clothesline wire that the cat has his chin just above it. You know, the claws are kind of on there and it's like, you know, I survived. I'm a survivor, you know, and you don't have to go through life just surviving just barely with your head up barely alive and that's why I tell people you can thrive in the midst of your tragedies in the midst of that you can still have joy is it happiness because you know I think everybody's searching for happiness they want to be happy in life and that's based on your circumstances so you know if things are great and your marriage is great and your finance is great and your health is great you're happy Well, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about the inward feeling that you have in your heart, no matter what's going on, that you still have that, that joy. It's not happiness, but you know, that in the midst of losing, you know, a husband to suicide, being, you know, almost killed by the first husband, losing my son, I can still choose to laugh and be joyful and have those, you know, that's an attitude that comes from within me. That's not based on my outward circumstances and what's happening around me. And that we do have control on.
0: Absolutely. Well, speaking of your son, so I guess we should probably walk through, you know, Mark's life um, and, and his uh, siblings as well. So um, from what I understand, I listened to Mike Ritland's interview that you were on um, mentioned about uh, you exposing them to, to war films. So tell me kind of the, the timeline of being young kids and when when they started to show interest in actually serving?
1: Um, and I don't know um, that there were any specific times. I mean, there were always, you know, boy boys, you know, digging the dirt, you know, taking a piece of wood and making a gun. And, you know, I always tell people this garbage in America that, you know, we can't have, you know, you have to, push your children or not push your children to whatever gender, they come wired as warriors and you can't unmake them. If the, if God intended for them to be a warrior, you can do whatever you want. You can take, you know, not give them Nerf guns or guns, or they're going to take their toast and bite it in to be a gun. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work, but you can't make them a warrior if they didn't come that way either. You can try all you want. And it's something that's internal, that comes that way, and so you you want to, you know, support that. You want to build that. You know, encourage that character. I guess. I mean, I have Nerf gun wars with my grandkids all the time. You know, we we enjoy life. We have fun. Even my you know granddaughter who has four bro- you know, four older brothers, um, very much. She's a little girl's girl, but man, she's a tough little cookie. We have a, a video of her. She she will be four next week. But um, they have a Nissan. 12 passenger van. And she literally has one of the big exercise ropes that they hooked up to the van and she's pulling the van.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness.
1: I mean, it's in neutral, but she is pulling that van. I'm like, what the heck? And, and her mom said, well, it's on a little bit of an incline. If you go down the street, it doesn't feel like it's much of an incline. You know, it's not like it was on a Hill and she's rolling and they got a video, you know, before the van runs over her. But, um, it, it, she is a tough little cookie, but, um, and then I got a little sidetracked there on, on what we we're talking about. Uh, what was your question just for that?
0: No, it's okay. So, so basically kind of walk me through, um, yeah, cause they, I know several of the boys ended up in the military kind of when, when they did show that interest and kind of walk me through even further into their enlistment.
1: Sure. And you know, that's one of the things, you know, Mark says it was all the the war movies I made him watch. That's why they went in the military. I'm like, yeah, no, you came wired that way. It wasn't those, but, um, I've I've always been, when I read, I read to learn something, to better myself, you know, history, background. So I'm kind of the same way with movies. I want to watch movies that are, you know, uh, historical movies, not that they're always documentaries. But I've just been always really drawn to those that show, you know, the men and women in the military, what they've done to defend us and the freedoms that we enjoy every day. Um, I don't take that for granted that there was a price that was paid for me to every morning wake up and enjoy that I can worship the way I want. I can say, you know, those things, you know, obviously I can't within reason tell people that the building's burning down when it's not and cause, you know, panic or riot or, but I have amazing freedoms here in America and there is a dear price that's paid through the years. Obviously uh, I've learned how deep and, personal that dear price is but I've always known that so I've been drawn to those kind of movies that was just you know a lot of what we watched growing up and um I think every young man in their you know developing ages as a young teen watches a movie oh you know especially I remember Mark watching you know the Navy Seals movie and uh You know, looking back now, laughing, going, well, that's not even near what what it's about. (laughs) But they watch the movie, and they get the beautiful women, and they get to blow things up. And, you know, they're the heroes. You know, who would not, as a young man, want want to be a Navy SEAL after you watch a movie like that? But um, I don't think for Mark, um, it was until later in life where he really developed that. My oldest son, Christopher, went in the Marines. In um, August of 2000, my son-in-law Christopher, yes, they're both Christophers, gets a little confusing, but um, went in the Army in October of 2000. So then in May of 2001, Mark went in um, the Navy with the contract to go to BUDS. Doesn't guarantee that you'll be a SEAL, but says you're good enough, physically fit and intelligent enough that you could be a candidate and you're going to go once you do your basic training. I think for Mark, you know, he saw the camaraderie, he saw his brother and brother-in-law, you know, go through the military and the physical. Mark was always very, you know, physically fit, was a soccer player. Um, But I think there was a lot of competitiveness and it was like, hey, watch this. You're in the Marines, you're in the army. Well, I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL. And um, he had actually blew out his knee uh, came home his freshman year and said, mom, I'm, I'm going to be a professional soccer player. And I always taught my kids, you know, even, you know, when I was struggling in the beginning um, years of raising them as a single mom that, you know, you put your mind to it, you can do whatever you want to do. And um, when they would come home and say, I can't do this, I would say, no, you mean you won't do this. And so they would hear those things and that attitude. And um, when he came home and told me he was going to be a professional soccer player as a freshman, and because we didn't have a lot of money, they didn't play any youth sports. My grandkids are involved in, um, you know, youth sports and are on club teams and oh my gosh, it's a whole different world than what we lived in. And, um, you know, I remember saying, um, Mark, you've never played soccer in your life. <laughs> you know, kind of like, what the heck do you think it's then? But trying to, you know, Still, if you put your mind to it, you know, thing balancing out there. And he said, No, Mom, I really want to do this. I'm like, Okay, you know, and so he started, you know, I was homeschooling them and he went to the high school because he could play sports with the high school. And uh, he was the most improved player um, his freshman year. Later, um, is actually at his funeral, his uh, soccer coach spoke and he said he was probably the worst soccer player he had ever seen. <laughs> and so I guess you got a long ways to get most improved player when you're the worst soccer player. But um, he ended up being the youngest um, soccer coach at the high school. He was trying out for the Colorado Rapids, which is the professional soccer team in oh. Colorado, and uh, blew out his knee the night before try- tryouts. So had to come home, get surgery. He um, had torn his ACL. They removed half of his meniscus. And it was during that time that he really started doing a lot of reading of, you know, autobiographies of Navy SEALs. And I noticed he started going to the pool more, more often swimming. They had had swim lessons growing up. And um, I noticed he'd have a workout routine. You know, he'd been working out of the gym regularly that was a habit of his that he did have and you know he started refining that more and i noticed you know more numbers in the pull-ups and the sit-ups and the you know burpees and whatever else he had on there but um and that's when he made the conscious choice uh why he was healing he did go back to uh, the master's college for one more semester wanted to play a little more soccer and that's then when he went to the recruiters in may and um then uh, went to try out to become a Navy SEAL. The first time that he went through, he got pneumonia and pulmonary edema uh, during hell week. Um, And it was just a couple hours before the cutoff point where he would have been rolled forward and would have still been in class two, three, nine with the rest of his class he started with. But he wasn't quite to that point. So, and and he went in when they did the medical exam on him and told him what he had. He's like, no, I could do this. I'm good, I'm good. And they said, no. We had a guy die two classes ago with what you've got. We, we've got to pull you. We don't have a choice. And uh, so then he got rolled into class 240, um, rang the bell on Hell Week on Monday night, was sent to the fleet, the boat that he was sent to, because you, you still got to finish your contract, you know, even though you, you know, drop out of the seals. And um, his boat was in dry dock. He was It was the USS Enterprise. Oh, no, wait, it was the Eisenhower. I always get these confused. I think it was USS Eisenhower, which was in dry dock. So he was driving a shuttle bus for the Army. I have a picture of him with his head on the steering wheel. Oh, oh my gosh. And, I mean, what a contrast. Go from trying out to be a Navy SEAL and now you're driving a shuttle bus? You know, he always hating life. And um, I remember the phone call when he said, Mom, I screwed up and um you know we talked about you know why he made that decision and he really felt like it was the wrong decision that he made and i said you know have you prayed about this are you sure this is where god wants you and he goes yep i'm positive that's where i'm supposed to be i said well you need to get your butt back there then you need to do whatever it takes you need to jump through whatever hoops you need to but you need to get back there and it took him about a year he had to go through Oh, i mean they put him through he had to write essays he had to do extra pt he had to meet with officers and for a year he had to go through that process and rightfully so you know if you've been through once and quit how do they you know know that you won't just do that again but uh went back in class 251 and was in running for honor man in the platoon did not get um honor man i remember that phone call and him saying Oh, mom! I didn't get on her, man. I'm like Mark. You got your Trident. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I'm competitive, so I get it that you know. But um, you know, and just an amazing story of perseverance there, you know, to go through Buds three different times, um, you know, and looking back, you know, and I'm sure any of the team guys would tell you, you know, they make it sound like in the movies you watch, you know, Buds is the worst part, the you know. Like I said, they don't call it Hell Week for no reason, but, um, you know, that they went through. But that was the easy part, you know, looking back when you're deployed into combat and what they endure and what they go through. Man, that's intense. That's crazy. But very proud of um, my son, my son-in-law and Mark, you know, that all served in the military and defended me and my freedoms. Very proud of, of our military and my, my kids.
0: Well, I'm sure. And and the thing what really kind of stands out on Mark's story is, you know, I've had a lot of SEALs on here now. I've been very lucky to, I think, I think the special operations community has so much value and, and so many tangents with the first responder community. So we have a lot to learn from each other. Yes. Um, but understanding the physical and mental grit to get through buds once, you know, or maybe get rolled back and have to finish a, a, a portion how hard that is and the attrition rate but uh, to be rolled back and then have to you know vie for a place again that speaks volumes on his you know physical and mental fortitude so have you ever kind of like analyzed that and look back what allowed him to succeed when so many other people had failed
1: i really think it was a lot of the tragedies and trials that he grew up through You know, seeing that, like I said, not the perfect mom by any means, but that we weren't going to quit, that we did always continue to pick ourselves back up, no matter what was thrown at us, no matter what was given, and one step at a time, we just went forward one step at a time, one step at a time. I know that his faith was a big part of that. Mark was going to uh, the Master's College to be a a pastor before he went into the, the SEALs. So I know knowing the mindset and the purpose that this was the mission that God had given him to complete, you know, and that, you know, God was going to equip him and give him the strength for that. I I know that Mark had no idea the end of the story, you know, how it would end here on earth for him. You know, Mark was redeployed to heaven, so it hasn't ended for him and he will have, you know, a lifetime up there. But to see the impact that Mark is still making around the world in such a crazy way. Today, that would not have happened if Mark was still here. Selfishly, would I rather have him here? Yeah, in a heartbeat, you know. But um, I do know where he is. I will see him again one day. And God made Mark's mission clear to him. And he's made my mission clear to me, you know, and what I'm supposed to be doing. But, um, you know, one of the things I think back of Mark was his humor. Oh, my gosh, he won Class Clown two years in a row. And I was like, oh, great. And this is going to get you to college. How? Really? (laughs) But I do see that that was another one of the tools that, you know, that's how God equipped Mark. Um, And the guys will tell you, you know, he was always, you know, would bring the humor and just when they needed something lighthearted for a minute. Obviously, he would be focused on the mission. He wasn't a class clown when, you know, they had an intense mission and needed to stay on target. And, you know, he carried the big gun. Um, but, um, and he just was a warm, loving, he would stand up for the, the underdog anytime. He didn't care who said what, or if anybody made fun of him. Um, I remember, like I said, I homeschooled them and I would drop him off, you know, at the high school for a soccer game and the bus would be loading up and, you know, there'd be guys on the bus and he'd come around to the car and give me a big kiss and a hug. You know, he didn't care who saw him or what, you know? was going on and somebody was being picked on, man, he'd be there to stand up for them. And just, uh, yeah, amazing young man. I was blessed to be his mom for 28 years. And he lived more in that 28 years than most people that live, you know, 90 years. And, um, you know, I do, I count my blessings that God picked me to be his mom. He could have picked anybody else and I had the privilege of being his mama, so.
0: Yeah, we well, seem very proud to this day.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: <laughs> well, he ended up obviously working some, with some incredible humans. So, kind of walk me through, you know, what you got through, you know, letters, conversations, and that kind of thing. His his experience getting to SEAL Team Three, and, and then ultimately Ramadi.
1: Yeah, and again, you know, your unique circumstances for Mark when he joined um, Charlie Platoon. He was on SEAL Team Three. He was. Um, on, uh, I believe he was on echo was who he was on originally. They had, uh, circumstances with one of the guys that was on Charlie platoon that they had to let go. And, um, last minute, they typically do a workup. So once they're assigned to a team, they've got 18 months of workup that they work together with their team in and out day and night, and they build a unique tight bond. Well, because they had to let this person go, then last minute they went and said, OK, it's it's short notice before we deploy. We know we need the best guy that you've got out there to come you know, acclimate into our platoon. And um, it was Mark. And so he didn't get the privilege of going through all the different workups. He came right in at the end and. Um, he was the new guy. And so the new guy, man, you get given all kinds of crap, you know, you, you've got to work to be part of this platoon. And, um, you know, they, they took bets, I guess, behind the scenes as to how long, you know, before Mark could, you know, be acclimated in. And, um, but anyway, they said it wasn't long with his humor, with his big heart that they couldn't, you know, as hard as they pushed on Mark, it didn't bother him. It didn't stop him. He didn't get frustrated. He didn't get angry at him. And he said it was in no time that he was one of the Charlie boys and was very connected with them. But um, as you said, an amazing group of young men just on Charlie platoon itself, which basically is 16 guys. We had Chris Kyle. We had Leif, who was their lieutenant. We have Johnny Kim, who's now an astronaut. Um, we had... Um, Amazing other guys and a lot of them, you know, are still deployed, so I can't mention their name. Jocko was the commander for Task Unit Bruiser, Task Unit Bruiser, not SEAL Team Three, but basically Task Unit Bruiser makes SEAL Team Three the most highly decorated Special Forces unit ever in Iraq. Amazing group of men, and as I said, you know, I I had not met any of the guys before Mark died, but um, that's my family now, and I remember Mark trying to explain the brotherhood i'd be like, yeah 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 i get it you're you're close to these guys you know you've trained hard with them you know you've gone into combat with them yeah i get it you're you're very close to them but it's as close as your brother you grew up with for 28 years and he'd say yeah mom that close and i'm like well let me remind you i did not birth them so they can't be your brothers <laughs> and we kind of left it there and then um, the week that mark died I had five of his buddies, you know, of course his teammates, his Charlie brothers, um, were still deployed. Um, but some of his swim buddy and some of the other team guys that were close to him, I had in my home and I saw, oh my gosh, they love Mark as much as we do. And they're hurting just as much as we are. And that's when for me, the brotherhood thing came alive and I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. And, um, I was very concerned for the Charlie boys that were still in the combat zone. I was trying to process through my grief and I couldn't get up and make a decision to save my life. And that's just part of the grieving process. But I was like, oh my gosh, how are his teammates who are in the combat zone who are grieving and are probably having these same grief issues? How are they going to go out and continue their mission without jeopardizing more lives? And um, so my heart right away went to them. I got phone calls that night after they knew that we'd been notified from Iraq and started talking to them. And, you know, Jocko and Leif will both tell you, you know, they were trying to prepare themselves for those phone calls. And how are we going to support Mark's mom? What are we going to do to continue um, to encourage her from being over in Iraq, this mom who's just lost her son? And they said, you know, I called and I was the one that was, how are you? What do you need? What can I do to support you? Um, I'm praying for you, you know, be safe. And um, they did what they do well. You know, they compartmentalized that grief and um, pushed it aside for the safety of themselves and for the mission. And they continued their mission strong, um, even after Mark left and um, continued to take it to the enemy, you know, for Mark. But And then it was when they came home that they started um, their grieving process. But um, I had met with uh, President Bush in October after Mark died. And as we were talking, I'd taken the team picture of Charlie Platoon. I was telling him about all his teammates because I'd gotten to know them already. We were emailing back and forth. We had phone calls regular. I was like, when's your birth date? Are you married? Do you have any kids? Where do your parents live? And so we did, we, you know, those relationships started early on. And so I was telling him about all the different guys. And I said something about um, their commander was Jocko. And of course I didn't know Jocko as well, you know, early on, it was more the Charlie boys that I knew really well. But um, I remember president Bush said, you know, Oh yes, I've, I've heard of Jocko, you know? So even back then, um, you know, he had a reputation for being a great leader, but um, after I would left, I thought, oh, I should have asked the president to sign a you know, a platoon picture to each one of the guys. So I reached out to my contact there to see if I could still make that happen. They said, yes, of course, they'd be honored to. Give us a list of the names on each one. So I have the Charlie platoon pictures personalized to each one of the guys. And I told them I was coming over to bring them a surprise. And that was in January. And um, to my surprise, they put me up in the presidential suite at the Grand Hyatt downtown San Diego. So I still think that how odd is that that I'm bringing certificates from the president that they have no idea what I'm bringing. And they put me up in the presidential suite. So um, that night we were all up there in the suite and I just shared with them um, that Mark was my kid who loved to give gifts. Literally, he would hunt for hours to find that perfect gift. Most men, if it's a birthday or something, like, okay, let's go bag it, tag it, got the gift, good, check done. <laughs> but he really wanted it to be something very special, very meaningful. And, um, I remember one Christmas, um, he came home and he'd, um, had the present and it was all, he'd had it wrapped in the stores, all wrapped up. He's like, Oh mom, this is so cool. I can't wait for you to see it. And, uh, I said, well, put it on the Christmas tree mark. Cause if you don't put any there. I won't have anything dope open Christmas morning. And, uh, he said, okay, um, no, no, mom, you got to see this. You got to see this. I'm like, no, put it on the tree. Well, all of a sudden he's ripped it open. And it was a set of, set of gold flatware that match, matched my china and golden color, not gold, solid gold. But um, he was so excited that for himself, he couldn't wait. And I always tell people that was Mark's teammates were his final gift to me. And he intended for me to open it up and get to know them right away. You know, not put it aside, not wait for them to come home. And, um, and so I was always telling them, you guys are Mark's vital, you know, gift to me. And they hear that often from me, that that really is. And man, the priceless value that those, those men are and their families to me is is something you really can't explain. You know, the closeness that's there, the bond that's been developed. And, um, it, it is a true blessing to have those men in my life and, um, and their families as well.
0: Now, one thing I, I asked people who have actually been deployed, I don't know if, if you were able to get these kind of perspectives from Mark, but I think it's very important for the civilians of the world to understand what we're asking our men and women to do or often boys and girls. Um, and then, you know, hear their stories, hear what they saw, um, And so I kind of break it into two parts. Firstly, did he ever relay um, the the horrors that he saw once he got over there, that, that regardless of kind of politics prior, that really justified them removing some horrible people from, you know, the place that they were at, obviously, Ramadi in this case?
1: Yeah, and fortunately, we have that in a written letter. That was Mark's last letter, Home Desk. Um, He doesn't go into great detail because, and he even mentions that letter because the people involved in the, you know, security, the OPSEC for the, for the mission. But I really looked forward to when he did come home to go into more detail about the missions and what happened, you know, specifically that he could talk about. Um, I have heard a lot of those stories, you know, from his teammates, but um, he talks about that in, in detail in that letter, you know, the things that he saw over there and the places. And he said, we will get Iraq to stand on its own two feet. It will take longer than most expect. But he does say it's the right thing to do for us as Americans. And Mark very much believed in the mission and what he was doing over there. Mark is one of the main characters portrayed in the movie American Sniper. And in that movie, I mean, they threw him under the bus the way they portrayed him. They make it sound like he doesn't believe in the mission. At one point, he asked Chris, Chris, I don't even know if or makes the statement, I don't even know if I believe in the mission over here. And that could not have been further from the truth. You know, so it breaks my heart that he was portrayed that way. I still think it's a great movie. And that, you know, and obviously it's Chris's story. That it, uh, Bradley Cooper did an amazing job, you know, portraying Chris. It is a movie. It is not a documentary. Um, I think it gives a great glimpse into the decisions our troops have to make over there. What they endure, um, a glimpse into that. I think it does a great job showing some of the issues the family deals with back home and, most of all, the importance to support them when they get back home. I have been over to Iraq twice. I've been in the combat zone. I went on a patrol with the first of the fourth cab three different times, was not being fired on. Nothing was happening around me. Not that it couldn't have been. You know, something could have happened, but nothing was happening uh, when I was out there. I know we did go um, to one of the Sheikh's house, and the colonel went inside. We waited out in the vehicle. But I, ooh, the back of my neck, the spidey senses and the hair went up on the back of my neck and something, something potentially was going on around us. Nothing did happen, but, um, so I got a glimpse, a glimpse into the lay of the land, what it's like over there, the smells, the sounds, the different things they see, um, their living conditions, you know, I got a glimpse into that and what a privilege Um, that I had the opportunity to be able to do that. That gives me a much greater understanding as I work with the troops as well. Was able to go over there and um, love on the troops on behalf of the majority of, you know, civilians that can't get over there and the mom spouses and and be able to do that, encourage them. But um, it's amazing what we ask our men and women to do in the military, what we train them to do, the things they endure and that they, they see over there, and then, um, you know, as an American sniper, the, the mission of supporting them when they come back home and take care of them. But um, I guess my conversations with Mark into detail will have to wait till I get to heaven.
0: Well, conversely, the other side of the coin as well is the the humanity they see. Because, again, you know, if, if you're not really – being quiet and listening to a lot of the the people that are over there you know there's almost this illusion that oh we're at war with iraq we're at war with afghanistan we're not we're you know we're trying to hunt some horrible horrible people that are living in this country that are terrorizing their own people so did he ever talk about elements of compassion kindness humanity that he saw of of the regular iraqi people amongst this horrendous war zone they were in
1: um, he did, again, I would encourage your listeners to go to our website at americasmightywarriors.org and read that letter because there is so much wisdom in that. He covers, you know, as I said before, the things that he saw and did over there, the um, the importance of the random acts of kindness. You know, there's so much in there. He says, I, a lot of things I saw and heard I'll never talk about. He said, I went into a hospital that you and I wouldn't even be able to stand the smell, let alone get medication and help from. He said, we are helping the Iraqi people. I saw that firsthand when I was there, how much the Iraqis were grateful that we were there and the support. That's not what we saw on the mainstream media. you know. And as you said, we're not at war with Iraq. We're, it's the global war on terror. It's the terrorists. If the terrorists would all stay in one place, you know, we could... Take care of them there. Or if we had rules of engagement at different times, it allowed us to do what we needed to do. We'd long been done and gone over there, but we won't get involved in the the politics of that. But um, it's just, it's um, phenomenal, the the wisdom in that letter from Mark. And then he ends that letter with, to my family and friends, do me a favor, pass on the kindness, the love, the precious gift to human life. We are one of the toughest warriors in America, silver star recipient, you know, who then is doing things, you know, that you, that I wouldn't want to do. You guys that have served to do some terrible stuff and have to do that to defend us. But most of us wouldn't do that. And yet one of the most compassionate, caring men you will ever know, you know, what a contrast. And I see that in so many, uh, you know, the, The team guys I know, I see that in Jocko's life. I see that in Leif's life. You know, I see that in so many of uh, Mark's teammates, some of the toughest warriors we have in America and some of the most kind, caring, compassionate men. You know, what a contrast. God did a great job when he put that all together in these guys.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's such an important um, perspective to hear as well because I talk about this with some of the mental health issues, especially when people struggle transitioning out. Because we are a yin and yang, you know, and I think that the hard part is obviously, you know, carrying a weapon, going into a uh, fire, running towards gunfire as a police officer. That's when you're a flow state and you need to be that that tough side, that warrior. But the reason we enter these professions was compassion. And I'm sure if you really broke down, you know, Mark's background, he wanted to be protector. He saw what happened to his mother and in her timeline and wanted to make sure the, the buck stopped there. So that's that soft part. And so when I think some of us kind of allow ourselves to be pulled into the illusion that we're all the hard, that there is no soft. And, you know, so I think it's so important as a warrior to also be that compassionate person and not let yourself start to get that compassion fatigue that we see in in our profession, certainly just through exhaustion and burnout. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's exactly, to me, what a man is. Yes, at times you need to be Hard, you need to be tough, but other times you need to be compassionate. And it's beautiful that Mark was able to portray that in his last letter to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, what a gift, what a gift that was. And uh, that came by email. Um, it probably there were maybe 12, 13 people on that email thread, close, you know, family and friends, and had no idea, no idea when he sent that letter out, but literally millions and millions of lives. And I don't exaggerate that number would be changed by that letter.
0: Absolutely. Well, talking about that then, so August 2nd was another pivotal chapter in your already you know, uh, turbulent life. Um, it's the worst case scenario, whether it's in the military, whether it's in the first responder community, you know, the, the battalion chief vehicle rolling up. A good friend of mine was just in Miami, at the collapse and had to do the death notifications of every single um, person who was identified as deceased in that building. Um. So tell me about that day, and again that that grieving process once again that you had to endure.
1: Yeah. Ooh. Um. So I knew when Mark um he visited me before he deployed, and uh, his birthday's in March, and that's you know about the time frame they were deploying. I'd taken him down the street here to Rangers, uh, Royals uh, spring training baseball game, and on the. After the seventh inning, they put up on the marker board, happy 28th birthday, Mark, have a safe deployment, love mom. And uh, when he was leaving after he'd been here, I knew, I knew I didn't feel good about it. And I'm not a worrier. I'm not a fretter. That is not my personality. That is just not who I am. But as he pulled away, uh, drove away in the car, um, I looked at my son, Chris, and I said, man, I, I don't feel good about this. And he said, "Neither do I, mom." And he's a lot like me—that not, not a worrier. That's not, not his personality. And uh, I remember sharing up my Bible study with um, some of my friends there. That just please be praying. You know, this just didn't feel right. And they're like, "No, no, no. He'll be fine. It's you're just a mom whose son's deployed. You know, this is natural. You know." And uh, I went about life. It's not like every day that a black car turned in a corner at my house. So I would look and go. Oh, Oh my gosh! Is today the day? Is is this it? Is it time now? You know, I, I didn't. You know, I still continued to live life and um, prayed more for Mark probably than I prayed for anything else in my life. Does that mean God didn't answer my prayers? No, um, God heard my prayers. Um, there was just a different end to the story there. And um, they Mark Mark had died earlier in the day, and they were trying to locate me up in. Um, Oregon, where I lived, I had moved down here just uh, previously during his deployment or during his, while he was in the military, he hadn't deployed yet. And um, I know he changed the paperwork. I remember getting the phone calls and mom, what's that new address and getting all the pertinent information for the paperwork. But um, if they would have found me that morning at the same time that, you know, shortly after Mark had died, I would have been alone by myself. And, uh, anyway, they have been looking for me for about eight hours up at my property in Oregon that I still did own, but, um, didn't live there. And finally they'd gone to one of the neighbor's house and they said, well, she doesn't live here anymore. She lives down in Arizona. And At this point, they're afraid that I'm going to hear on the nightly news, you know, about Mark. So, um, typically in the SEAL community, we have a, um, SEAL CACO officer that alerts us along with, um usually someone from that team or, or close teammate goes, but because of the concern for the timeline, uh, I'm close to Luke Air Force Base and there's a small Navy detachment there. So they just sent the Keiko officer from there. Um, they got to my house and I was not home um, and they waited for a while there and finally knocked on my neighbor's door and said, do you know where Debbie is? And And her husband had served in the military. So when she saw them in uniform, she knew something wasn't right? Um, And she said, well, I don't have Debbie's cell phone, but I know her son works down the street at Lowe's. So they reached out um, to Chris there at Lowe's. Of course, wouldn't tell him. He served in the Marines. He knew, you know, when you see them, if they're wounded, you'll get a phone call and they'll get you to them. They don't come to you. And uh, so he called me. I was actually at my Bible study that night. We were celebrating my birthday, which had been the week before, but um, we had not gathered. So um, after our meeting, we were celebrating, having cake and ice cream. And um, my girlfriend had given me one of the willow tree angels. And those are the wooden angels with the wire wings that are a collector item. And each one has a different character quality. And the one that she gave me was courage. And she said, you You just remind, you're such a woman of courage with all that you've been through in your life. And little did we know how much more courage was going to be required. And uh, when my phone rang, and usually I always turn my phone on silent when we were there. And I hadn't that night for, um, obviously, there was a reason it was not supposed to be on silent. And Chris called and there was nothing in his voice to alert me. There was not, he wasn't talking too fast. He wasn't crying. He wasn't loud, nothing, just a normal voice. And he's like, hey, mom, where are you? I'm like, well, Wednesday night, I'm a small group. Why, what's up? And he goes, how long will it take you to get home? And I thought, well, that's an odd question. And I said, I don't know. And of course, I'm starting to know if something's not right at this point. And I said, I don't know, five minutes, seven minutes. Why, what's up? And he said, you just need to come home. And as I said before, I knew when Mark left it wasn't going to be good. And I grabbed my purse and I told my friends, please be praying something's not right. And I got in my car and there was a song from my past that said, I put my hope in you, O Lord. Trusting you, I will not be shaken. Knowing that you will see me through, I put my hope in you. And I just sang that over and over and over. And I got to the main intersection by my house and there was probably three or four fire trucks and several ambulances and several police cars. And I remember thinking as I pulled up on that intersection, my house blew up. That's all that's wrong. My house blew up. And trust me, I would rather have lost all of my earthly possessions and still have Mark. And to this day, I can't tell you how I got through that intersection, but somehow I found myself back in my my neighborhood and there were no more emergency vehicles. And I came back to knowing what was going to face me when I got home. And when I turned the corner to my street, I expected to see a black car parked out front and there was no black car parked out front. They parked way down the street. It wasn't even a black car. I guess I've watched too many stinking movies, but, um, my son Christopher was on the sidewalk, just pacing back and forth. And I parked facing the wrong direction. So when I stepped out of the car I'd be right there on the sidewalk and I got out and he said, mom, The Navy's here. And I remember falling on his shoulder and just crying and saying, no, no. And um, we walked inside together and the Keiko officer and uh, the chaplain, which I didn't even know was a chaplain until years later. (laughs) But um, they were standing inside and they said, we can tell by being in your home that you're a woman of faith. And you're going to need to rely on that faith for what we're about to tell you. Your son, Mark Allen Lee, has been killed in action. And as a parent, that's the most devastating news you could ever receive. And I remember standing there and trying to accept that, you know, God in his grace allows us to be so numb in the beginning that we can't. We can't process it. We can't accept it. Um, Because we'd all go, you know, commit hair care and jump off a cliff somewhere if we had to. Immediately accept that and process that, and um, I remember that we talked for a little bit, and um, they left, and um, went and sat on the couch. And I had a long, skinny window next to my door, and I looked outside, and my friends from my small group were standing outside. And I'm like, "What the heck are you doing out there? Get inside! I need you inside!" And so I motioned them in, and um, you know, shared about Mark and. You know, we cried and we prayed and we talked and, you know, we cried and um, they stayed for several hours and it, you know, got to be close to midnight and they left. And as I said, I started to get phone calls from the guys in Iraq and uh, my son Christopher said, Mom, I'm going to stay here tonight. I said, thanks, son. He had met his wife when he was in Okinawa and she uh, had gone home for six weeks. She got to go home every summer to be with her family, and so he decided not to tell her um, because both my daughter in law and my daughter the year before had both lost babies at about five or five and a half months along, and they both had just got pregnant. <clears throat> so we were concerned that you know the stress could cause miscarriages. So he decided not to tell her how he did that. I have no idea. You know the toughest news he's ever had to endure as well and he has conversations with his wife and is trying to act like everything's just normal. He knew she was coming home. You know, she would be home just before the funeral, but for, you know, that was six more days out or however long it was. And uh, so he said, Mom, I'm gonna stay here tonight. I said, thank you, son. And he said, I'm gonna go try to get some sleep. I said, okay. Well, I knew there was no way sleep was coming to me that night. And um, I'd mentioned that I'd been a widow at that point for 12 years. I just wanted somebody to hold me and tell me it was going to be okay. And there wasn't anybody there to do that. But I did know who could do that for me. I knew um, God promises to be a husband to the widow and a father to the fatherless. And I'd seen him do that over and over for me in numerous different ways. And so I knew where my strength was going to come from. And I went and grabbed my Bible to sit down and just read and get some comfort there. And it opened to Psalms 27. It starts out, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and they fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me. And I'm reading this thinking, Okay, this is David. This is thousands of years ago this was written. But this could have been written to me today for my circumstances. Excuse me. And um, I read through the bottom of it. And the second to last verse said, I would have lost hope if I had not believed. I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say. And I saw that courage thing. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I got the courage angel earlier in the night. And now you're reminding me again, courage. Okay, God, I got it. I will have courage, not on my own strength, because I know you're with me. And because I know you will be with me through the end. And I could not have felt an embrace and felt someone holding me closer than I felt God holding me at that moment that night. As if he'd have physically been there, and again for me that was just that reminder. He saw, he knew what I needed, and he was comforting me at that very moment in my my deepest pain. And um, it has been a process. Like I said, you know, the beginning days of grief they are days. They're days when you can't get out of bed and all you got to do is cry. Um, and I didn't sleep for several days. It wasn't a hell week. It was a hell week in my life, but it wasn't, you know an entire week that I didn't sleep, but I had several days that I I really couldn't sleep. And it just began that long process of grief and accepting. And, you know, I wanted to think for a long time, he's still deployed, he's still deployed. You know, that's what my, my heart, my head wanted to tell me or my heart, I guess my heart wanted to tell me the head was the reality of, yeah, no, he's not coming back home. But, um, It's not like one day I ever woke up and said, I'm going to start a foundation. You know, one thing just led to another. And I wanted to honor Mark. I wanted to thank our veterans who were still serving. And Mark's letter reminded me, you know, when's the last time you paid for a stranger's cup of coffee or meal or tank of gas? I could do that. In the midst of my grief, that was a little task that I could go do. I could thank a veteran. And one thing led to another, and I would just happen to be in Washington, D.C. when he had another Navy SEAL that was flown on, you know, flown in with their face blown off or their legs blown off. And I just happened to be in Washington, D.C. when you live in Arizona. You know, God placed me there um, just for that time. And that was where he gifted me to be able to support in those tragic times, to encourage them and be there for them. I went to so many funerals. You know, everyone after Mark died, I'd be there at those funerals to support those families. The first one was Mike Monsoor. Seven weeks after, you know, Mark was killed, we lost Mikey Monsoor, who, you know, jumped on a grenade to save his teammates and was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions. And there wasn't any other gold star mom there to walk alongside me in the beginning. Mark's teammates were still deployed. That was, you know, my major support. We had support, you know, from the up to the, the funeral, but then everybody goes on their they go back to their normal lives. They go on their way. And I'm not someone to sit around and feel sorry for myself and say, hey, why, why are you here helping me? Why aren't you supporting me? But it's like, oh, I can sure make sure no one else has to go through this alone. I didn't expect that it would be that soon after Mark died. But um, I knew I needed to be there to support Mikey's family. I didn't know what I was going to do exactly other than be there giving a hug and, and let them know I'm a few steps ahead of you and I'm still alive, you know. My heart literally, not was it just emotionally broken. It was physically, it hurt. My heart really hurt going through that. Um, And the stress causes a lot of sickness, you know, in that first year for people who've gone through major tragedy like that. But, um, uh, and it just, one thing led to another. God would push me another step forward, have me beat another place. And pretty soon I'm like, Um, Okay, I think this is a life mission that God's trying to tell me to do. And I don't have unlimited financial resources that I can just do this out of my own pocket. And so then um, we started America's Mighty Warriors to be able to support our troops, our veterans, and other Gold Star families. And it has been uh, a tough mission that God's asked me to walk, but he's equipped me and given me exactly what I need to do. And it is so rewarding, you know, to be able to do that. And support those who pay a dear price for the freedoms we enjoy every day.
0: Well, I just want to start again by by thanking you for for telling you know Mark's story and your story because I think this is what people need to hear as well. Uh, Me again as a civilian, not in the military, from the outside looking in, I see a huge responsibility on the people who send our young men and women to war. And there's times when it's completely justified but i think we need to hear you know from the the warriors themselves from the families themselves like hey when when we do this this is this is the cost this is what you're asking not only the individual but their families to go through and endure for the rest of their lives so you know i mean world war ii is a perfect example there are some conflicts that are absolutely justified and the lives lost were were you know to stop evil but there's a tendency as well if we're not careful for people the want to send our men and women everywhere so it's it's such an you know a, a powerful perspective obviously you know ramadi was it was a very um worthwhile conflict and and you know iraq is starting to to grow from that now so you know but it but it's so easy for a news agency to just put a bunch of numbers on a, on a powerpoint and say oh this is how many people were killed this was one one person and we anyone who's not deployed anyone who's not in the military need to hear People like Mark's story and people like your story, so that we can understand not only the magnitude of what we're asking them, but also have the gratitude for what they have done for us.
1: Yeah. One of the ways I autograph the books that I'm a contributing author in is live your life worthy of their sacrifice. And I think you're so spot on with what you said that the civilians need to understand that cost. Our government needs to understand that cost. I feel like war should always be the last resort. We need to try so many other things. You know, there's sanctions we can do on countries. There's, you know, diplomatic things we can try. And we did. We tried, you know, all that earlier. And and I still believe, you know, we were justified in what we did. I am disappointed that oftentimes there were not rules of engagement that allowed us to be successful and do, do the mission that we do. I think there could have been some different strategies at different times, but I do still feel like it was the right thing to do. You know, we were attacked here on our soil and had a huge loss of life on, you know, September 11th. And there is so much evil that's out there in this world. And we can't allow that to flourish, flourish and continue to grow. We need to stop that where we can't. No, we shouldn't be out there policing every nation and trying to run every other government. And, and you know, we have a hard enough time doing that in the United States. But, um, you know, I think that war should always be a last resort and should be taken very seriously, that um, decision when we make that decision. And that the understanding of the loss of life, you know, that could be involved or that most likely will be involved But again, then we live our lives worthy of those sacrifices. We go on day to day saying, okay, this is what was given for me. What am I going to give back in return for that gift? And, um, you know, so that's kind of, you know, my motto that I live by. I want to live my life worthy of the sacrifice. For me, obviously, John 15, 13 Um, That's what we've got on the back of our, you know, Mark Lee Memorial T-shirt, which says greater love has no one in this than to lay down their life for their friends. And that original intent is what Christ did in laying his life down for us so that we can be free from the consequences of our sin. That's for eternity. What Mark did and others have done and the sacrifices here are to keep us free as Americans. Um, But, that applies, live your life where they' their sacrifice, whether it 's the sacrifice God did in giving his son or the sacrifice that you know we did, and you know what Mark did, giving his life as my son
0: absolutely. well, I want to just talk about one more area, and then we 'll transition to some closing questions and you know I know we've gone way past the the ninety minutes we talked about, um, but what i 've seen again as a common denominator is when people are able to 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 process their grief and they're then able to start helping others, that altruistic element seems also very healing for the individual. Did you observe once you started the foundation that not only were you able to help all these Gold Star families, but there was also a healing within yourself too?
1: Um, I think definitely anytime we can serve somebody else and do something for somebody else, that helps immensely in the healing process. And as I work with families who are struggling you know, in that healing process, whether it's grief, whether it's, you know, post-traumatic stress, whatever tragedies they're going through, you know, I encourage them, first thing to do, wake up in the morning and find one thing to be grateful for. I know in those beginning stages of grief, it, it was really hard to find something, you know, but I would say, did you have hot water in your shower this morning, you know, or last night or whatever you, Yes. Okay. Just say, thank you that I had hot water in my shower. You know, a lot of our troops deployed don't have that freedom. They don't have, you know, a lot of third world countries don't have hot water in their shower, you know, and there's something in our psyche that when we start out being grateful for something, it's contagious. And it doesn't matter what your circumstances, how fresh that grief is, how deep that grief is, you do that. And I'll bet later in the day, you're going to find something else, you know, subconsciously that you're like, oh man, I'm blessed that, you know, these grandkids are here today. I'm blessed that, oh, thank you for this meal. You know, the little things in life. And then I say, get up and do some type of exercise. There's a natural endorphin that's released when you're exercising. So whether it's run up one flight of stairs, if that's your choice for the day, then increase the next day and do two flights of stairs. You know, just do something. Even if it's just walk to the end of your driveway and back, do something and then, you know, continue to increase that. And then go serve somebody else, whether it's knocking on your neighbor's door and offering to take their dog for a walk, going to preschool, reading a book to the kids there. It doesn't have to be starting a foundation and reaching out, you know, on a major way. But do something for somebody else. When you're serving somebody else, you're looking outward. You're not looking inward and focusing on your pain and your grief. And so I think, yes that definitely has been a huge part of the healing process. I don't know that I subconsciously knew that when I started all this, but God did when he placed me there and, you know, had me doing those things. But those, those are huge ways to heal, you know, and anytime you can see the positive, you know, and the impact that you're making in somebody else's life. And like I said, go read Mark's letter, those things, you know, he it doesn't even have to be buying something. He said, When's the last time you helped a stranger with their groceries into or out of the car? Just think that one thing you're loading your cart, you know, with your groceries and maybe you're struggling. Maybe you live in Arizona. It's 115 degrees outside. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be here for 10 minutes. And somebody comes by and says, hey, can I help you with that in the car? And you'd be like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. That's awesome. And you get back in the car and you're like, wow, that was really cool that they did that. And it changes your whole attitude and, you know, outlook, you know, for the day. So I think those are major things that can be done.
0: Absolutely. Well, I agree 100%. Absolutely. Um, it's funny, actually, um, I was at a restaurant in Ohio going back with my uh, my wife and uh, a gentleman walked, well, was sitting waiting for a table with the World War II hat, which you don't see very often at all. So we were able yeah. to sneakily pay for there. Their check too, and then we kind of ran away. <laughs> That's awesome. Didn't film it and put it, it on Instagram. <laughs>
1: yeah, it feels good to do that. Yeah. Like, so we don't have very many of our World War II veterans left.
0: No. And then I told my wife after, I'm like, I hope that was one of those moments where, you know, there's got to be a lot of veterans that see some of the behaviors that are going on at the moment and feel it is a lack of gratitude. So I hope it's you know when 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 we help anyone it, it's great but I think when when it's toward a veteran I hope it kind of restores their faith in in the country that they fought for.
1: Yes, agreed, agreed. Good on you guys for doing that. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> well, it was Fourth of July. Would be
1: happy <laughs> Mark would be happy.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned that you co-authored a couple of books. So before I ask you about other people's books, um, tell me the titles of those so people can find them.
1: So they're all on our website. If you go to our website, actually we've got all of. Um, Jocko and Leif, any of the books that Mark's teammates have written that talk about Mark, uh, one of them that I'm a contributing author in is How to Raise an American Patriot. Each chapter is a different author, and they talk about what they did to instill patriotism in their kids' lives. So that kind of talks about, you know, Mark as a youth growing up and and some of those things that we did, and then ends telling his amazing heroic story on his final day. Um, Another one's 10 Secrets of Overcomers. It takes 10 people who went through tragedy in their life. Uh, we're the only military-related story, but um, the things that they did in their tragedies to overcome, that kind of starts with Mark's heroic actions the day he died and what we've done since then um, to get through the grief and overcome that. The um, other book is um, stories, from, uh, see. stories of Faith from Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's 365 daily devotions written by men and women who've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. Or we're on the Pentagon on 9/11. It's a short story of their circumstances and easy, you know, read for the day. And then maybe at the end it just has a short scripture or prayer. Not, you know, uh, very light, you know, type of devotional. I have five in there, and Marcellus letter home is on two days of that. And then there's also a book called Victory in Iraq that um, Duncan Hunter Senior wrote that documents all the different troop movement in Iraq up to 2010, and when we were you know, successful before they did the left, and then we had to go back and start over again. Um, That documents my first trip to Iraq. There's some pictures of Mark and I in there. Um, Also documents Mark's amazing story in there. And then, you know, all of Echelon Front, Kevin Lace, who was the medic that was with Mark, um, his book is up there. Uh, All the books that are on our website do share Mark's Amazing Story are dedicated to Mark um, other than Jocko's book, Mikey and the Dragon. Actually, I think it's still dedicated to Mark, but that's, um, Mark is the main character in the Jocko's kids books that are the leadership books, The Way of the Warrior Kids. And uh, it was funny because the first one was um, From Wimpy to Warrior. And when Jocko was writing the book, he's like, hey, Mama Lee, I'm not saying Mark was a wimpy kid but I want to just honor him. And so there's some some similarities in there. Mark is raised in the book by, you know, a single mom. And, um, but, uh, and I always tell people, man, it, it doesn't need to just be kids that read those books. You know, the leadership principles are great for every adult. I've read every one of the way of the warrior kid books, but, uh, Mikey and the dragon is, um, Who knew Dr. Dr. Seuss and Jocko would have some similarities, but um, it rhymes in there in parts of the book, and it has to deal with fear and how how this little boy faced his dragons. He thought there was a dragon in every room. And Mikey is to honor Mike Monsoor.
0: Beautiful. My son's read the first two um, Warrior Kid books, too, so he's actually asking me to get him another one, so I definitely resonate with him, too. Beautiful. So that that's the books. Are there any movies or documentaries that you love to recommend to people?
1: Yes. The one that I recommend is uh, History Channel did a docu- documentary called uh, Warfighter. And it's the story of Mark Lee and Charlie Platoon. And after American Sniper came out, not only was I very upset with the way Mark was portrayed, but his teammates were as well. So Jocko and Leif reached out to me and said, would you be interested in doing a documentary? You know, um, with Hollywood. And I'm like, nope, want nothing else to do with Hollywood. My saw, saw what they did to Mark. They threw him under the bus and they said, well, there's a team guy that's involved in the project. I'm like, do you know him well? So you can go break his arms and legs of <laughs> 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 Jokingly, but, um, and they said, yes, we know him very well. I'm like, okay, if you guys trust him, I trust you. So um, it's actually Jocko and Leif and myself and um, Jason Hogan, another one of the teammates, Tony Afrati. And so they reenact the actual story. They also talk about Mark. They talk about the, the mission. And Very well done. Very well done. It's a series of eight. Mark was the first um, series they did on that. But yeah. So that would be the documentary. There's um, a lot of other, there's a brush of honor that they did, a story on Mark. It's a gentleman who did a, a portrait of Mark. And in the process, they tell Mark's story and talk about America's Mighty Warriors on there as well. But yeah, there's there's a lot of information out there if they just Google uh, Mark or um, America's Mighty Warriors or there's a, a lot you can find out there on the internet about Mark and what we're doing through our foundation in his memory.
0: Beautiful. Well, the next question is: There a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Uh, have you had Jocko or Leif?
0: I've had Jocko. Leif's going to be coming on in the fall, I believe. Jocko's actually been on twice now. I um, had Dave Burke and JP as well. So. And then Jamie okay. is about to come on next week.
1: Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, those, those would probably be the ones that, that I would recommend. So you're a step ahead of me.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure we, we tell everyone where they can find you know, the foundation and reach out to you. What do you do to decompress?
1: What do I do to decompress? Um, I would say my decompression is my grandkids. I love having my grandkids around. Um, I had a preschool and kindergarten for 15 years and had 45 kids around me every day. So most people were like, don't you get stressed having all five of them at the same time? I've got 11, six of them are up in Oregon, but five live near me. And I'm like, no, that's, that's my, I love having them around. I like to swim. Um, I do walk five miles every day. So you know not all in one chunk but you know mile here two miles there but um and then yeah i like to read
0: brilliant all right for people listening then where's the best place to find the foundation online and then are there any other places that people can reach out to you specifically
1: sure they can follow us on social media um also our website is americasmightywarriors.org and it's a-m-e-r-i-c-a-s M-I-G-H-T-Y-W-A-R-R-I-O-R-S. Sometimes the S's don't come out clearly when I say it. So, Um, but yeah, check us out, see what we're doing. We've got tons of merchandise there as well. You know, if if your um, listeners are interested in supporting us, we always need supporters. Um, They can sign up for our 21 and 21 campaign where they commit to giving $21 a month on a recurring basis. And if we find 2,021 people this year, that meets more than half of our budget. And of course, um, with our foundation, we have four main programs. Um, our first program is our random acts of kindness. Uh, we do that, like Mark said, when's the last time you paid for a stranger's cup of coffee, meal, or a tank of gas. But we do go up to a $5,000 grant. Typically, that's crisis situation. But um, the veteran themselves can't reach out because, unfortunately, we have found veterans that are just going from charity to charity to see what they can take. And that's not who we want to support. So if you knew someone, you know, even law enforcement, if they served in the military and there's a crisis situation, you can reach out and say, I have known this person for three years, five years, 10 years. Um, you know, their daughter has cancer and is dying and the family needs to be with them and can't work um, or, you know, the house just burnt to the ground or, you know, whatever crisis situation that helps us vet them. And then usually within 24 hours, we can have a check out and ready to support them. Our Helping Heroes Heal program, we're paying for our veterans um, who are from combat, have post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury. We're paying for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, hormone and vitamin therapy, natural things that are actually healing their body. So many of the things they're trying right now are just masking the symptoms. They're not healing their bodies. And so that's what we're focused on there. We've seen amazing results take place there. Um, Our Gold Star program, we have two houses, one in Arizona, one in Florida where the families can come stay free for a week. We take care of their airfare rental car um, and just love and pamper on them. Let them know we won't ever forget your hero and we won't forget you. And then we do retreats down in Texas. We just had 76 Gold Star family members down there um, the week of Memorial Day. Um, a beautiful facility that has zipline, kayaking, canoeing, three swimming pools, water slides. Um, just amazing place where they just come and relax and recreate and connect with other families. We don't do counseling. We don't do therapy. It's not, it's just to connect with other families. I feel like the grieving process needs to be natural. Don't force me. If I'm having a great day, please do not put me in a circle with 20 other moms and pass the teddy bear. And we all share our, our son's story of what happened the day that died. We're all going to be blubbering idiots by the end of the time. Um, <clears throat> And then we do a lot of advocacy and education. So if there's an injustice, we'll try to step in and make that right, whether it's our government, a corporation, um, and just letting people know the sacrifices that are made and what we need to do to continue to support them. Mark's name meant Mighty Warrior. And I'm sure you will agree, as your listeners will, he definitely lived up to his name. But it's not just about Mark. It's about every man and woman who served it's about every other gold star member and that's why the name of our foundation is America's mighty warriors
0: beautiful well i just want to thank you firstly for telling your own powerful story and i always say this i it's such a dichotomy to use one of leif and um, jocko's words cuz you know it is to to get that courageous transparent story that i know is going to help so many people also drags that individual back through some dark chapters of their life so I truly appreciate your you know your courage in telling the story today but also Mark's story I mean to hear who he was and and the the altruist that he was and the impact the ripple effect of, of one single life to where it is now and watching Jocko and Leif and everyone talking about him and watching them visibly moved 15 years later Um, you know it's It's been such a powerful conversation. So thank you so much, not only for telling your story, but being so generous with a two-hour conversation today.
1: Well, thank you. God bless you for what you do.